Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis and this Abe Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today I'm joined by Kevin Johnson. Kevin is the owner of Royal Books in Baltimore, an open bookstore that specialises in rare books and paper relating to 20th century literature and pop culture, particularly cinema. He's the author of The Celluloid Paper Trail, Identification and Description of 20th Century Film Scripts, which was recently published by Oak Knoll Books. So today, we're going to the movies and we're discussing collecting film scripts. Welcome, Kevin. Hello. Hello. First question. Perhaps you can describe what a typical film script looks like. Well... Uh, it, it, it can look a lot of different ways uh, depending on the era you're talking about, um, whether it was published by a studio, uh, or, or I should say issued by a studio in the mid-century or, or early in the 20th century, or uh, done some other way later on after the studio system kind of came to an end in the late 60s. Um, but if I were to describe a typical film script, meaning the kind that you see the most often, um, it's usually just a collection of eight and a half by eleven uh, leaves um, that are bound together, typically typically with brads, sometimes with staples, um, and there is more often than not a wrapper, or uh, some people call a cover on the script uh, that's made out of a cardstock material. Although sometimes um, scripts have what uh, collectors and dealers and librarians call self wrappers where the paper stock for the cover is the same as the paper stock for, uh, for the script itself. So they're quite humble then? Oh yes, it's, 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 it's not made to be beautiful, it's made to be used. Oh. And uh, it, that's, that, that's a difference, uh, a, a huge difference between a script and uh, a book, because when a book is published it's designed to have some inherent beauty, like a dust jacket has an illustration, the, the book will have some stamping, uh, so forth. Um, scripts are sometimes a little fancy that way, usually not. Um, What's the difference between a script and a screenplay? Well, at least in the parlance that I've chosen to use, um, and a lot of others, I think, uh, a screenplay is a concept, and a script is an object. So a screenplay, you know, you're saying to someone, I wrote a screenplay, that's, that's the word you're using in, in back and forth to convey to the other person the understanding that, that you have written a screenplay for a film. Uh, whereas when you say, uh, I have a script, you're talking about an object that you could literally, that I could hand to you. Perhaps you can tell us who collects film scripts. Um, there uh, has really been a, a big increase in interest since I began selling scripts in earnest, which was about 2005. So, you know, I'd say, gosh, about 15 years ago now. Uh, at first, I only had a few customers, um, but as cinema changed pretty dramatically at the turn of the century, and I think that once it did, and once the millennium kind of became kind of a, a mile marker that we could start of start to see in the behind us, uh, institutions began having an extreme interest in scripts uh, and began acquiring them. And, and now we sell uh, scripts to institutions all the time, uh, as well as collectors. Collectors collect for different
different reasons than institutions acquire. Um, you know, uh, usually it's based on the kinds of films they like, the directors they like, perhaps an actor that they like. Uh, whereas institutions tend to collect more thematically. Uh, institutions are generally more interested in uh, the region that the story of the script concerns, or perhaps the region where the film was shot. Uh, it can concern the, uh, anyone that was involved in the film, if they came from an area that that institution is interested in, uh, uh, would that, that institution would go after scripts that were relating to that person. For example, uh, Patricia Neal was born in Knoxville, Tennessee, so any film that she acted in uh, would be of interest to the University of Tennessee. So how many scripts get created for a, a movie production? That's a really good question. Um, one, one thing you have to do when you're thinking about scripts uh, is, is divorce yourself from the mindset of, of how books are published almost altogether, uh, because there's not just one script, and the whole notion of a first edition is not really relevant. The notion of vintage is quite relevant, meaning that you're looking at a script that was the one that was issued uh, at the time the film was in pre-production or production, what have you. Um, a script goes through many phases. It starts out as a treatment or an outline, and which is a, an issued object with wrappers, often, and um, then moves on into the draft stages, first draft, second draft, third draft. All of this goes on uh, well before shooting begins or a cast is announced or picked or anything. They're just developing the story and how they're going to shoot it, and that can go on for... Um, well, in the case of a B picture from the 30s, it might only go on for a few weeks, but in the case of a big picture, it could go on for years uh, before uh, shooting would begin. So there's a number of scripts that are issued during that period, uh, and then at a certain point, once the film has been greenlit, cast, and so forth, the first shooting script is issued, and that's the one that they intend to use as the blueprint for the movie that's going to be made and sent out to the cast and the crew. So I'm saying all this to sort of describe the kind of quantity you would see for a given script. Uh, a first draft of a script or a treatment is going to have far fewer copies than a shooting script which might be published in the hundreds. Um, and uh, the, basically the, way, the, the easiest way to think about it is that the further back you go in, on the timeline, the fewer scripts there are that are produced, generally speaking. So a big showy production from the from the 1980s uh, might have quite a few scripts produced then. Absolutely, and correspondingly, you do for some movies that were big productions uh, see scripts turn up more often today than uh, than they would for a small picture. Um, unsurprisingly, if you're looking at a like a Poverty Row B picture that was made in the 30s or the 40s that only took a couple of weeks to shoot, um, scripts are rare. So what happens to scripts once uh, the filming has finished? Well, I think that technically they're the property of the studio. I think the studio is more concerned about the intellectual property than they are the object itself. Um, uh, a lot of them, having talked to people who worked on films back in the 20th century, and I've talked to a lot of them over time, uh, a lot of the scripts are, of course, just thrown away. As soon as the person is finished doing their part in the film, they sort of, sort of see the script as a guide and they throw it away. Others keep it as a souvenir uh, or, or just keep it as a record of the work that they did as an actor. Um, but when I've done archives, for example, 
virtually never has there been a time with a director's archive or an actor's archive where every script for every film they made was present. So if you're a collector, what are the key factors in making a script desirable? Well, again, you, uh, it's, I think it's kind of important to divorce yourself from first edition thinking. Uh, that's not to say you should divorce yourself from uh, understanding what's rare or scarce, but you know, typically when someone's looking at a first edition, they're, they're looking for one that, that is as close as possible to the day it came off the printing press. In other words, a beautiful copy commands a high value. With scripts, it's almost the opposite. Um, a script that was issued, remained untouched in a file drawer and never used, and never written upon, uh, to my mind and to the mind of most collectors uh, that I've encountered, and certainly institutions, uh, has the least value. Uh, a script that has the most value is the one that John Wayne folded in half and put in his back pocket and, and wrote on all the pages that had to do with his dialogue. He wrote down his thoughts. He might have even written down some phone numbers for people he needed to call, but is an, it is an artifact on one hand, it was John Wayne's copy. On the other hand, it has really remarkable content because dialogue has been changed. Uh, he's written down his thoughts and a whole history of, of, of the film from that one person's perspective is, is right there in the object. So if the wrappers are worn or torn or have ring stains on them or so on and so forth, as far as I'm concerned, so much the better. I, I, would, I gravitate toward those much more quickly than I do clean ones. So would a script that had been owned by an actor be more valuable than one that had been owned by a director? Oh, no. Uh, I, 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 would, I would hesitate to even assign relative value. Right. Uh, I just think it depends on what the person is looking for. Let's just take, for example, the world of annotated scripts, just so we can focus in on something, annotated scripts that were made during shooting. Um, some people might be... It depends on who you're concerned about. If you're concerned about the person who wrote the script uh, uh, or changes that were made to the dialogue or the direction or scenes that were cut or so forth, uh, then you may be more interested in the producer's script, the director's script, or something that we can possibly talk about later called the script supervisor's script, which is kind of the holy grail in a script, uh, in the pursuit of scripts. Uh, or you might be more interested in an actor's perspective. Um, it just depends on it depends on what's important to, to the person who's collecting. So at the high end of the market, what's the most expensive script that you've ever sold? Most expensive script I've ever sold was $75,000, and it was uh, Orson Welles' heavily annotated uh, final draft of Touch of Evil. Right. So 1956, 1957. Okay. And it was bloody with ink all kinds of changes. Uh, he would he would type out little slips of paper with changes to dialogue and then staple the slips to the page over the old dialogue, all kinds of things. It, it, was, it was a thing to behold. It was really great. So let's take three famous movies, all quite different. Wizard of Oz, Jaws, and Night of the Living Dead. What would an original film script for each one be worth? Well, let's start with The Wizard of Oz. Uh, those are three really good examples because they're three very different kinds of films in terms of their placement in time, uh, the nature of the studio system when they were made. But if you're talking about The Wizard of Oz, you're talking about, uh, I believe, MGM, uh, right in the, the heat of the studio system when studios were king, and uh, the studios all had an incredibly 
precise machine working uh, for uh, development of a film and shooting a film, including an entire stenographic department that would print revisions, uh, handle issuance of scripts, and so on and so forth. Nothing was outsourced. They owned their photographers, they owned their writers, they owned the actors. So everything worked like a Swiss watch. And the scripts were no different. Uh, I've never seen a script for The Wizard of Oz uh, turn up in the wild because it's such a famous film, it tends to go straight to auction. Although, of course, just like books, I'm sure that they've been handled privately in the past. Um, but uh, I do know of a couple that I've seen at auction in the past that had uh, what we call uh, color revision pages. And the more color revision pages there are, generally the more value it garners because it's sort of closer and closer to being the complete script that was the final revision used in the making of the film. Uh, and um, that's that's quite a valuable script. could sell for you know over $100,000, certainly. Um, interest in The Wizard of Oz is kind of deathless. Um, uh, if you skip over to something like Jaws, uh, that's a movie that was made after the studio system had collapsed and the new Hollywood era, uh, as it's described, had begun and a whole new young generation of directors had uh, had sort of taken over. People like Sp- Steven Spielberg, Martin Scorsese, Francis Ford Coppola, etc., uh, were sort of the new young Turks. And Hollywood had changed quite a bit in that a lot more movies were being shot on location rather than in studios, and uh, a lot of the the printing work for a, for a script was outsourced. Now, in the case of Jaws, as I recall, um, uh, so Universal still had a stenographic department in the mid-70s, and Jaws was in 75, I believe, uh, and so uh, the script was issued properly from a stenographic department. Um, I think more copies of Jaws have probably survived, than The Wizard of Oz. There's more of a, a notion of script collecting by the 70s than there was, or holding on to something like that, than there was in the, uh, you know, in the 30s or 1939 for The Wizard of Oz. Um, so I've seen it a couple of times. It always garners a lot of interest. A script without much in the way of annotations is not in the same league with uh, The Wizard of Oz. I think it would probably be, at the most, maybe two or $3,000 although I could be mistaken. Um, when, I've, when, I, when I've handled it, that's, that's where it's sold. Um, and then the last example, The Night of the Living Dead, is probably, if you're just talking about strictly about rarity, probably the rarest script. I have only seen one script for Night of the Living Dead, and that was in George Romero's archive. Um, and that was actually his type script that he used when he was shooting the film. That movie was made on such a low budget, and so many decisions were made on the spot and improvised, et cetera, et cetera, uh, that virtually nothing has survived except in except in Romero's archive. Now, now, having said that, tomorrow one may turn up, but uh, but I would say, you know, that of the three you mentioned, it may not be the most famous film, nor may it be the most expensive script of the three, but it would be the hardest to find. So those three films are really markers in, in cinema history. Night of the Living Dead was made, Romero worked for a, uh, an industrial filmmaking corporation, and he and a couple of his friends also worked there. In other words, they made commercials right. for factories. And uh, they were up in Pittsburgh, and uh, Romero and a few of his friends all pitched some money into a, into, a, into a pile and said, let's try to make a horror movie. 
so they they didn't even know they were just completely winging it they didn't even know if they would get distribution um and of course it and uh what's ironic i actually watched an interview about this recently i think it wound up costing them three hundred thousand dollars to make it which was wildly beyond what they had anticipated they were going to spend but they just kind of went out and, and you know gathered up the money from various sources and still had a group of about, I think by the end, about 10 people had invested. Uh, and after a couple of years, I think it had made $300 million. You mentioned annotations a few times. You must have seen some really interesting ones. Oh, yeah. They're, I mean, they were always interesting, or, or most always. Uh, it's great to see changes in dialogue that happen, of course, once something's uh, being shot and an actor probably walks over to the director and says, you know, I think they're coming from me. It would could I say this instead of that? And he would say, okay. And so the, so he would either, he would make an annotation or he wouldn't. Um, an interesting thing happened recently, uh, to give you an example of how some, some are heavily annotated, some are barely annotated. It really depends on the actor and how much they're working out of their mind and how much they need to be, to have the script to remind them of what it was they were going to say. Um, we handled Dana Andrews' archive a while back, which uh, went to uh, a university in Texas. Uh, where he went to school briefly before he went to Hollywood. And um, when we uh, we got his scripts, uh, we were talking to his daughters, and I, I was looking at them, and none of them were annotated. And, you know, these are movies he had big roles in. He was the star of the film. And I said, so are these the scripts he used, or did he just keep one? I don't see any annotations. And they said, oh, he had a, he had a photographic memory. And uh, this is something I hadn't been aware of, and I actually went and read up online about it later, and read comments from directors who said that he would go into a room, sit down, and uh, look at the script for the next scene that he was about to film, come out 30 minutes later and say, I'm ready, and then flawlessly do his dialogue from memory. Pages and pages and pages of it. Um, so that's really cool, but in terms of like knowing what kinds of changes or thoughts he may have had, they weren't written in the script. And what about TV and theatre scripts? Are they sought after? Yes, there is. I mean, television, because so many scripts um, are produced, uh, you know, because they're, they're just more episodes of a television show, obviously, uh, and more scripts to deal with. Um, TV scripts are generally uh, less expensive on a per-script basis than, um, uh, than uh, scripts for a movie although there are certain beloved television shows that have such an avid collector base that scripts turn up very rarely. Uh, some examples would be Star Trek, The Green Hornet, um, Lost in Space. Right. Um, uh, Star Trek scripts in particular are, uh, are difficult to find um, because there's, you know, there's just a lot of them retained in collections. Have you ever seen any examples of censorship where uh, perhaps some dialogue or a particular scene has been removed? Uh, yeah, but not very often. Uh, I mean, I've probably only seen maybe eight censored scripts in my life where evidence of the censorship was there. Uh, they almost all came from the Hays Code era, or uh, for those who aren't familiar with the Hays Code, it's sort of a censorial code that was imposed on films uh, starting in 1934, and it raged all the way through uh, the 50s, um, and uh, and then after the uh, 
HOAC hearings, uh, it sort of started to wane and then kind of went away and was replaced by uh, the ratings code, uh, you know, in other words, G, PG, R, and X, uh, that came along in the, uh, in the late 1960s, early 1970s. That sort of replaced censorship. In other words, rather than censoring a film, they just told the viewer, you know, that you'll have to make your own judgments about this. Um, but uh, the censorship scripts are really interesting, and the Hayes Codes, um, it, it, they were, the ones that I have seen revealed an awful lot to me about about the Hayes Codes preoccupations. And, you know, at first I thought that they would generally be about sex, nudity, uh, or, you know, things that they say weren't appropriate for a general audience. Um, but, uh, and indeed, there was there were a lot of notations about that, a lot of notations regard, re, with regard to sort of uh, uh, dialogue that implied sex in any way. Uh, you would see it marked through and, cha- and, and, or you know, like something would be circled and said, this has to go. <laughs> right. uh, and as a result, though, the screenwriters just became more and more clever until they basically were putting a lot of salacious implicative dialogue into the scripts by the 40s that just went right past the Hayes Code. Um, uh, but the Hayes Code was also preoccupied with things that a lot of people don't know they were. For example, um, uh, if a person kills another person or commits a crime, by the end of the movie, that person either has to die or go to jail. Uh, and when you watch movies after 1934 and going through the 50s, you'll see that that's always the case. That even if you've got sort of an ant, when the idea of the anti-hero began to emerge like in the late 40s and early 50s, even if that guy uh, uh, sort of is portrayed in sort of a positive light, even though he made some bad decisions, he's still being walked off at the end to serve at least a short period of time in jail. (laughs) And all of that was imposed by the Hays Code. There's nothing like today where you could have an anti-hero who just walks. So we're now in a digital age. Are paper scripts still being produced? Well, what happens today mostly and what has been happening, as I understand it, since the 90s, is that uh, scripts are still produced, but virtually the only people you see hauling around a script on the set um, are uh, uh, the, the script supervisor, who I can talk about in a minute. We should. Uh, and possibly the director and possibly a production assistant. Basically, the only people who are carrying around a, a script or, or a binder that has all the pages that they need is going to be someone who has very broad concerns about the entire film. Uh, everything from, like, uh, you know, how many horses need to be wrangled for this scene to uh, understanding, like, uh, if we change this dialogue here, how is it going to affect that character later on in the script? So uh, the, the way that it's changed is that, yeah, it is more digital. I think that things are uh, transmitted digitally a lot more, obviously, just like they are in every other uh, facet of life these days. But the big thing that changed starting in the 90s was they began to use something called SIDES, uh, S-I-D-E-S, uh, which are uh, basically where the, uh, the dialogue for a given scene is printed out on this small piece of paper that you can hold in your hand and stick in your back pocket, and they're just stapled together at the top left corner. And then when the scene is over and the lines are spoken and it's a wrap, uh, as uh, director Tony Bill uh, told me one time when I was asking him about sides, he just said, you see trash cans full of them. 
at the end of the day because, you know, the scene's been shot. So tell us about the role of the script supervisor. Well, this is something that uh, there's, a, there's a section in the book devoted to the script supervisor, and there are whole books written about script supervisors and their functions. Uh, oddly enough, it's almost always been a woman, which is a credit to women, because it's probably the toughest job on the set. What the script supervisor does is uh, they have basically, at, at, the, at the high level, they have two functions. One is to uh, pay strict attention to continuity. So the script supervisor is always seen, almost always, sitting right by the director as a scene is being shot. And they're paying attention to continuity like no one else is. For example, if um, there was a scene, uh, scene in scene A, if, uh, if a guy had his sleeves rolled up uh, and then uh, there's a change of, uh, somebody changes their shirts because it gets too sweaty or whatever and they start shooting scene B and the sleeves aren't rolled up anymore, that's a continuity problem. If a person's holding a coffee cup in their right hand and then they reshoot it and it's being held in their left, it, they have the, con- the continuity is messed up because they may be editing scenes together later. Um, so she, I'm going to say she because Tony said he's without virtually without exception since since the beginning of cinema, script supervisors have been women for for reasons I won't speculate on. I don't really even know except that they just seem to be better at it. The other big job that the script supervisor has is every single decision that gets made about um, which takes are to be used, um, uh, small things that uh, the director wants to be sure are emphasized when the film is edited together. The director makes those decisions, but he's not the one who writes them down. The script supervisor is. And so they're paying attention to all of these this information that's coming at them regarding takes to be used, uh, way too scenes are to be edited together, dissolve, et cetera, et cetera. And when they're finished uh, with a script, they go and sort of gussy it up to make sure it's it's all in the proper uh, language. And they hand it to the film editor, and the film editor, it is so complete that the film editor, without having been on the set at all, can edit the film together using that document. So it's kind of a long explanation, but literally it's, it's, it's so professionally done and it has such a specific language that it communicates to the film editor what is, what is desired. The script supervi- it's so complete that the script supervisor herself does not even need to be there during editing, only the document. So that's why supervisor scripts are so important then? It's the holy grail. And finally, we ask this question to all our guests. What book or books are you currently reading? Right now, I'm, sort of, I'm in the middle of reading three books. I sort of tend to jump from one to the other and then come back around. I'm reading uh, This Wheel's on Fire, which is a, a memoir by Levon Helm uh, about, his, about the years he was in the band. Right. Um, first with Ronnie Hawkins and then uh, joined the band with... Um, uh, uh, which became, you know, back, backed Bob Dylan initially and then became their own entity with Robbie Robertson and Garth Hudson and others. Uh, and uh, that's, a, that's a fine book, uh, that, which I really enjoy because in the editing of the book, they really allowed him to retain his own voice. It's like listening to Levon Helm talk, and he's, you know, he's from Arkansas. He's just a, he grew up in a poor Southern family, and, and he's just, he speaks in a very, beautiful and specific southern kind of way. Uh, so that's been great. I'm reading this giant book that I'm kind of uh, working my way through slowly called Nightmare USA. It's a 
book by Stephen Thrower, who's a British author, about the rise of the American uh, grindhouse horror uh, phenomenon that began in the uh, in the early 1970s, basically in 1970, uh, that was that corresponded to the rise of the drive-in and so on and so forth, and all these movies that began getting made regionally. The most famous of which would be, for example, Night of the Living Dead, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Last House on the Left, etc where people who really didn't know too much, have any formal training uh, or experience in making movies, just decided to go make a movie. And the movie became inadvertently brilliant. So it's an entire compendium written about that era that is really exhaustive. And uh, it's quite long, but uh, there's no uh, there's no filler. It's a, it's a great book. Um, and uh, I'm reading rereading a book that I read before I wrote my own book uh, by Thomas Schatz called um, The Genius of the System, which is, in my opinion, the book about the history of the Hollywood system. In fact, if you wanted a book that would go hand-in-hand with uh, the book that I've written in terms of understanding how movies are made and the history of how they were made and how it changed over time, uh, it's, it's technical, but it's not so technical that it can't be read. Um, you know, a layman can definitely read it, um, but it's just, just a magnificent book, and he's revised it several times over the years. So that's all we have time for this week. A huge thank you to Kevin Johnson for joining us. Kevin is the owner of Royal Books in Baltimore. He's also the author of The Celluloid Paper Trail, Identification and Description of 20th Century Film Scripts, which was recently published by Oak Knoll Books. Good luck with the book, Kevin. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, and thank you for listening, and we'll see you again soon.